This is a main hustle media podcast. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O, and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the single simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back listening to Militantly Mixed. Main Hustle Media podcasts are recorded on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, Tongva, Karankwa, and Hohokam people. And I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your sir auntie, Charmaine Fury, a.k.a. the Blasian Blurred, the busiest mixed race, bi-gender, bisexual, polyamorous, atheist, comic book nerd, cat mom, and two-time Asian American Podcasters Association's Golden Crane Award winning podcaster in this podcasting game. This is episode 187. <laughs> 187. That's really funny that I, I went 187. That's a very Long Beach thing for me to do. Um, 187 on that in the cover cup. Um, this is episode 187, and my guest today is Megan DeRios Yankee. She is a multiracial, transracial adoptee, identifies as a Loma, Latine of mixed ancestry, raised by two white parents, biologically has one white parent and one Mexican parent. And we get into a pretty good discussion about how transracial adoptees, her specifically, um, tries to access their cultural identity from their heritage after a lifetime of being raised by white people. And there's a lot of decolonization work that has to go into that. There's also that craving of what you've missed and sometimes the the eagerness to overstep in a place that um, you're really just wanting to connect in, but because you've been steeped in whiteness, you just go in and and aren't very, maybe not, um, understanding how to enter brown spaces thoughtfully. And so it's hard work, it's painful work, and sometimes you just feel like you'll never be able to really be a part of the people that you come from. I would like to discourage that, that feeling to all my, my mixed folks out there who don't have access to all of your cultures when you're trying to gain that access. Just because you're removed doesn't mean you shouldn't have access, but you do have to be thoughtful about how you enter those spaces and what effect your skin tone may have in some of those spaces, especially if you're coming out there from um, a white heritage, white presentation, or um, generally just being steeped in whiteness. And that is a big part of what we talk about today. So it was a very good conversation. I hope you all enjoy and I hope you all engage also. Because one of the things that does happen on occasion for Militantly Mitch that I wish happened every episode is that people would engage immediately so that I can continue that conversation on in a follow-up episode or immediately after or whatever so we can keep that idea or that discussion fresh. Um, so if there are other multiracial, transracial adoptees out there, or even transracial adoptees, I've, I have a personal feeling that transracial adoptees, even monoracial ones, have a place in mixedness because they're they're physically one thing but raised in another 
and the cultural access issues are very similar to what I think we deal with as mixed folks. Um, so in my case, I, I feel like there's a place um, for them as well, even if they're monoracial in, um, in mixed spaces. But, you know, that could be my opinion, not others. So take that for what it is. I would definitely like to engage more on this topic because uh, for however difficult sometimes cultural access can be for just being mixed, adding on top of it that you were raised by people um, from an entirely different race could be, and culture could be quite difficult, an extra added difficulty as well. So I do hope you enjoy this conversation and that we continue to engage on it because I think it's important. I also would like to just acknowledge that I know that throughout the years of Militantly Mixed, there are times that I access a topic within mixedness that I don't relate to in my own mixedness. You know, I'm a black, Japanese, British, American mixed person, and I feel like I very much understand different aspects of the, the way I access my culture and my identity that may not be relatable to other people who either share or don't share my same heritages. That's just the nature of being mixed. We come at it from all different sides. But when I engage on a topic where it involves either an ethnic or cultural group I don't, I'm not a member of, or a topic within mixedness that I don't relate to because I didn't experience, I want to be as thoughtful and attentive to the topic as possible and not insert myself too many times because I don't know shit about what that experience is, but I want to listen, I want to learn, and I want to grow so that I can be helpful to the next guest that comes on that experiences similar things and say, hey, you know, I've talked to other guests about this very topic. Let's get into it. Things like that. That being said, I absolutely am 100% sure that at some point and some time in the future, I'm going to step out of pocket or make a problematic um, statement not realizing it, as I have done so in the past. Sometimes when I realize it and say it anyway, I might preface it with, I, I have a feeling this is problematic, but X, Y, Z, let's talk about it. And then there's probably just times that I just say something and it comes out of my mouth and it's like, oh, shit, got to deal with that on, on the recording. When, when I'm not aware of stepping out of pocket, I definitely would love my audience to hold me accountable. That way it comes to my attention and I can go do some work and research on it and I can come back and share what I've learned, and then watch me grow, which is an experience I do get to have on doing Militantly Mixed. When I have had a, a poor idea about an aspect of our lives, and I've, I've heard that it doesn't jive with other people, and then I go and do some research, and I come back, and I just adopt the new idea, I feel good about being able to chart that growth. I also don't remove it when I say something that is unintentionally problematic because I think it's important for people to know that it's okay for you to make a mistake, learn, grow, incorporate the growth, and move on. Um, and I definitely will acknowledge and hold myself accountable, which I have done several times on this show. That being said, you can't hold yourself accountable if you're not aware when you make mistakes. So if by chance I do, I'm not saying this is triggered off of anything. I'm literally just wanting to remind the audience I'm always open to this. If I do say something out of pocket or if I say something out of pocket on especially on a subject that I don't relate to because I don't come from that group, definitely point it out to me as, as a listener so that I can do some work on that. And I won't put that emotional labor on you to educate me. I'll hear it. I'll say thank you for telling me that and let me go away, do some research, figure out what I did, 
and then I'll come back and talk about it, and then I will move forward with the growth. That's how I operate. That's how I encourage other people to operate. So it's just a good thing to say on the show every so often to remind everybody that I am not an infallibly mixed person. I, I don't come from everybody's experience, and people who share my experiences may not have the same perspectives that I have as well. So, you know, the occasional monolithic statement or anything like that, or I just say something about a group I don't know anything about, it's fair to call me out if it ever happens, which I fully expect that it will because I'm a regular-ass human. Um, and I'm not afraid to find out that I've made mistakes. I'm not afraid of that. And I will make adjustments accordingly. So let me know if that happens. Uh, before we get out of here onto the episode, I do just want to remind you all that the 2022 Be Your Mix Ass Self annual t-shirt is available on the Military Mix website. Uh, we have sold a couple already, so I'm looking forward to those getting out and people wearing those shirts on the Instagrams. Don't forget to tag Military Mixed and hashtag Be Your Mix Ass Self so I can see them. Um, that shirt is only going to be available until November 14th, and then it'll be pulled from the website, so make sure you get it now while it is available. In addition to that, if you would like to support the show, we have the Militantly Mixed fundraiser, which is available on GoFundMe. Uh, as of right now, at the time I'm recording, there is a, we've received about $130 over uh, of the $6,000 goal. Um, but that has come through different sources. But I'm tracking it all on GoFundMe because GoFundMe does let you enter um, like cash donations or off, offline donations. So I'm tracking it on GoFundMe. I've had a donation on GoFundMe. I've had two donations, I believe, on PayPal. And I've had, I've incorporated a Patreon donation just because it was a pretty significant one. So we're at $130 right now, trying to hit 6000 And you can donate by going directly to GoFundMe.com and type in Militantly Mix and then we'll come up. Or you can do what I always say on every episode, go to the tip jar, put some coins in the tip jar on paypal.me slash mix. So I did get two donations that way. And, um, and then I added the Patreon sponsorship because, uh, and this is also going to be a shout out, uh, we got a new Patreon sponsor, Kyoto, who donated at the $50 a month level, which is very significant and great if it stays for a while. It really does help get us back on track with the show. So shout out to Kyoto for doing that. Um, and I just incorporated that just to show the momentum of it clearly being triggered off of discussing the fact that we are going to, we're fundraising right now. So thank you Kyoto for that. Um, and for everybody else who is listening, sharing, subscribing, writing reviews, sharing with your friends. All of this support is necessary and helpful to keep the show growing. But for now, with the fundraiser, if you're able to donate anything from a dollar up, I think a dollar is the minimum that the platform will allow you to contribute. Every little bit helps. Um, and I want to do my best to be able to stay on air for y'all. It's just um, come to a point at which I can no longer financially afford to do it solo by myself anymore. So I could really use the support of the audience. And I know that we have a large enough audience to do that because I can see the downloads. Um, so if you're listening to the show, if it gives you life, if it's helpful, if it resonates, if it gets you engaging in your mixedness in a different way than you have before, uh, please consider supporting the show because it does take a lot of work to be able to do this and um, it would just really help. So thank you for that. And I will put a link in the show notes to um, the GoFundMe, the merch, and the pay 
PayPal and the Patreon as usual um, so that you can access it that way. But you could also always go to militantlymiss.com and find the links, links that way as well. Uh, the only other thing I have to warn you all about is on this episode, I think there's two or three spots where Megan's voice does get a little metallic-y or disappears. Um, there was just a little con uh, connectivity hiccup, I think, from maybe where they live or something like that. I didn't cut them out because it still sounds relatively fine or you can get it from context, but I just wanted to warn that there are a couple of spots that that does happen. And that's all I got for you all. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the Melatonin Mix family, Megan. Today, I am joined by Megan. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience, and we'll get into it. Hi, I'm really happy to be with you, Charmaine, and um, all the cousins out there. I feel like I've been kind of the black sheep cousin for a while, so it's really nice to step forward <laughs> and say hello. Um, my name is Megan de Ruiz Yankee. Um, what shall I say? I identify primarily as multiracial. Uh, with the um, added identifier of Loma, which is Latine of mixed ancestry. I am also an adoptee. I uh, have three white parents and one parent from Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I have been, I was raised and most of my schooling and work have been in predominantly white institutions and spaces. Um, so really it's been the last, uh, several years as the country has had a justifiable, um, uh, reaction from the black community of, you know, uh, that I have had to really take a harder look at my own whiteness and decentering it, um, which I, I have to say has uh, been a process for me. But in that process, I've landed in Taos, New Mexico, which is very close to where I found my ancestors to be uh, originally from. And I found a lot of um, camaraderie in the locals here in northern New Mexico, just uh, mainly because I think a lot of us have faced the erasure of our Spanish language. Mm -hmm. um, I encounter it regularly here. So it's been a calmer place for me to kind of navigate what uh, La Raza and Latinidad is for me. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also been way far out in the desert. And I really <laughs> enjoyed the quietude of it. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about that, too. So you described yourself as having three white parents and one parent of Mexican ancestry or straight up from Mexico. From Mexico. From Mexico. Yeah. Okay. From Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, how does that break out? Is that um, biological and adopted, or is that where you raised in community and like parental? Biological community? and adopted. Uh, yeah. So uh, my adoptive parents are both white. Uh, oddly enough, mostly uh, Kansas, even though my dad grew up in the fort in Fort Worth. Listen. <laughs> 
on this show, <laughs> the amount of transracial adoptees where the white parents are from Kansas, I don't know what they were putting in the water in Kansas. It's a bit Kansas and Kentucky. Yeah, big time. Okay. Kansas, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Big time. We'll get into mm. it. Yes. <laughs> I look forward. I'm very curious to know more about that for sure. Um, so those are my two adopted parents. And then my first father, um, who, uh, rest in peace, just passed away a few months ago, um, is also from, was also from Kansas. Um, and my first mother's history is a little bit of a mystery. I think even to, uh, I'm in reunion, um, estranged reunion. Uh, okay. and my first sister has said that it, it's one of those things we don't talk about my mother's mm. history. So mm. it's just a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the the the, fam the family thing, secrets, or the things we don't talk about stuff definitely impacts exactly. a, a lot of us. I mean, I think probably almost everybody, but for mixed folks, some of us is like, I just I just need to know a couple of things about where I come from, please. <laughs> please it would tell me. be so super well <laughs> if great. that could be revealed. Well, so that's what was so strange about the DNA test for me because. Um, as a, a person born in a female body, my understanding is that I can only um, uh, access my matrilineal DNA line. I, I can talk about this a little bit. I have learned a little bit about this. Please. So, yeah, please. Everybody can test their matrilineal, their what is called mit mitochondrial DNA. Everybody can test right. that okay. and get some right. kind of result. Um, right. to get more specific with your patrilineal line, depending on what it is, there are things that are passed from father to son that are not passed from father to daughter, um, in terms mm. of biological, um, sex, if that's what we're wanting calling it. And so like in the case of say ancestry.com or 23andMe or any of those, um, Western based tests, they only mm. seek out mitochondrial. So you're only going to get You'll be able to pick stuff up from your patrilineal line, but you're not going to get those special things that pass from father to son. Those are going to be missing. Um, so mm -hmm. like an ancestry.com, let's say for any of us who have West African heritage, we're going to get hits on Bantu people because they were nomadic people. So you're going to see mm -hmm. you're going to see all of the Western coasts of Africa down into South Africa, up into Kenya. And you're going to think, man, I'm just from all these places. Yes. You're probably not. Your ancestry is probably from there, but really, once your once your people settled in one spot, you're pulling just the matrilineal part of that. If you're getting ancestry.com or 23andMe, whereas like African ancestry, the 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 company African ancestry, they have first of all more markers on the continent, and they separate the test between you pay for either patrilineal or matrilineal, and so you can get deeper dives for both of those, which as of, mm -hmm. as, as far as I know right now, um, AfricanAncestry.com are the only people doing that. I don't know about mm -hmm. on the other continents because I know Asians don't really do it that much. And, and I've, I haven't heard about one for the Latine community either, but there's going to be stuff Same. that if you're, if your biological fathers or an, say a brother to your biological father would, would test, you would say that's in me too but it just didn't pass to you. Yeah, sure. So, it's a weird okay. kind of thing. so like if you do the DNA test on your biological mother, you're going to get a very generic and broad hit. So it can be all of the, you know, Central America, South America, con con like you can get all of that hit somewhere yeah. Yeah. because they might have yeah. just one ancestor yeah. and it'll pull. Um, but to get more deep yeah. dive, it's a weird thing. You actually do need your patrilineal to get the more deep dive. But if your patrilineal 
So in that case, you would need a father or brother, immediate brother or father of your biological mother to find out those harder things on that side. Well, she's got like um, like nine or ten siblings, and one is a brother. And you just I gotta get one of those spit in that tube in this area. <laughs> so if anybody hears this from the Ruiz family <laughs> in New Mexico, I'm totally interested in hearing from you. No, uh, so so I only got so that confirms I only got um, hits from my matrilineal side, and the only hits I got were uh, from directly from the Pima people in Arizona, which okay. I don't claim and I can't claim. I'm, I you don't have access to them. From the tree. Oh, yeah, no way. Um, so even though my birth mother has told me that we are Apache and um, Zacateca, um, I don't know how much of that is like, how is that different from my Kansas, uh, family saying we have Cherokee in us? Like right, if it's, yeah. if you're too far from the tree, then you can't claim that really it's disrespectful in so many ways. <laughs> um, but I can say my DNA tied to there and I am here in the Southwest to sort of understand that better. And the other two hits I got were broad Africa and broad Asia. And I'm like, okay, well, another like it's way too far away from the tree there yeah um so you know uh, i don't i don't i've never felt comfortable claiming actually this uh this part of myself uh from my mother's uh side of things so you know even claiming multiracial and loma is challenging for me at times because i was raised so far away from it yeah well i would say as as like this is an auntie moment um <laughs> this is a mixed Thanks, auntie, auntie moment for you. <laughs> let, let me get my auntie hat on real fast. What I would say is that identity, there's different segments of identity. And as we've already discussed offline, you know, we both agree that identity can be very fluid, but I would take it another step further. The way me, Charmaine, identifies ethnically. I am black mm -hmm. from um, uh, an African ancestry from Gabon. I am Japanese. Yeah. I am British white, specifically British white, because my grandmother was from there. So that's why I don't just say I'm English. I say British because I need you to know it's closer. It just happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, even far removed, mm -hmm. my mother's whiteness is like a they came here in the they came here before the United States were formed. So they were here in 1711. They are Appalachian folk. They could be English, hmm. they could be Irish, they could be Scottish, they could be German, they could be all kind of white shit. I don't know what they are. Sure. They're Appalachian. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, sure. I know they're, yeah. they're Appalachian. Yeah. They're a different entity now. So that's how I identify ethnically. Some of that mm -hmm. I have access to culturally, some of that I do not. But here's my yeah. ethnic identity. My, yeah. what I would say, either my racial slash political identity, because I want to say that race is a political identifier. I say that I identify politically as black because I grew up predominantly in black community, mostly around mm -hmm. black friends and family. I continue to keep black community where I live and, and who I engage with primarily. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm politically black, although not, phenot you know, not I have some black mm -hmm. phenotypes, but not enough for sure. a cop to look at me on the street and be like, you're definitely black. Mm -hmm. Political blackness. Mm -hmm. And then my my cultural identity, which is where I assign to mixedness the most, because I think with mixedness, mm -hmm. you're talking about your ethnicity or race and your culture. And in that case, I'm black and Japanese and a little bit British. And the reason I say a little bit British is because I did grow up with a British grandmother who lived in my house. 
there are some things mm. I do that are definitely British. I have a British sense of humor. There's certain foods that I have access to, things like that. But it's not a big mm. part of my personality. It's not a it's not a dominant thing. Whereas hierarchically, I'm more black in terms of access then Japanese, and then a little bit British. So in those cases, in the way that I'm saying that I have these different identities based off of the different categories, ethnicity first, race or political, and then cultural. So in your mm -hmm. case, this is the auntie moment. I say all that to say the auntie moment, which is, while I understand the reasons why you are in the place that you're in in terms of your identity, I, quote, <laughs> don't feel comfortable accessing XYZ because I'm too far removed. Fair definitely a good part of decolonization and all that kind of work that you're doing right now. 100% fair. That being said, you have ancestors. You mm. may not know. This is about the most woo-woo I'm going to sound because I'm not, I'm not a person who <laughs> believes in anything, but I'm going to talk about it in okay. the, I'm going to talk sure. about it in the way like ancestors pass through your DNA, not in like a, yeah. there's an ancestor chilling up here, but like the way they pass yeah. through your body. You yeah. have ancestors who touched land that is not the land you're currently on. They had cultural, they had culture, they had language, they had all this kind of stuff. And that stuff is inside of you. It may be far removed. Mm -hmm. And the way you can access it, you have to be very thoughtful about, of course, because there's heavy right. amount of whiteness and white supremacy going on in the way that we're both reared mm -hmm. growing up on this, on Turtle Island. Mm -hmm. um, it's still there. So in mm -hmm. the ways in which you feel comfortable and confident in baby steps accessing whether it's just learning history trying to learn history from someone from that culture versus an american textbook or something like that you know what i'm saying yeah, yes. that i still think <laughs> is worth the effort to put in you know like for me mm -hmm. i found out because of the africanancestry.com test which was very expensive i had my uncle spit in a tube for me to get the patrilineal i found out what tribes oh. we come from from gabon now what i don't mm -hmm. say is that i'm from gabon I say I have African right. ancestry from Gabon. And when I right. do, when I finally get a chance to do my African pilgrimage, I'm going to go to Gabon because now I know that that's the terra that my ancestors touched before they got kidnapped. Mm. I think it's important for me to pay the respect to their existence while not claiming their culture as my culture, obviously. But I want right. to learn about that because I want to know what's going on in here because there's moments that I can't explain. And there's things like, I hear African drums and the way my body naturally removes. And then I'm looking at a little yes. video on YouTube and I'm like, wait a second. My body did that when I heard that. Yes. I didn't teach yes. myself that. My body yes. taught me that. You know what I'm saying? So Yeah. Yeah. I'm a dancer thing. by trade. So <laughs> oh, right. it's, it's wonderful to hear you talk about um, that uh, compelling to dance to the drums. I think everybody it. with a heart just moves. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but yes. I... I can imagine. Um, I can imagine for someone else at least that calling of the drums. Yeah. I have felt it myself. So what I think when I when I Charmaine am referring to the ancestors, I am talking about like the mm. what they left in my DNA. And I think you know the mm. the the natural reaction, the way my body rhythm tied into the music I heard that I had never heard before. But then I hear it, my body moved, and it just so happened my body moved correctly in terms of like mm. you know that's how in they're form, dancing yeah. back home. Yeah, I, you know, I'm saying that there's something there. So, mm -hmm. in in whichever way that you could babysit, get comfortable in accessing the the knowledge about the culture, not necessarily participating in the culture unless invited. You know, because that could be a step, right? right? 
Maybe you do a whole lot of historical research. Maybe you talk to a lot of people, elders or whatever, and you're just saying, um, you know, I, we share an ancestry, but I, I don't have access. I want to be as respectful as possible and learn at your feet or whatever. If you get that access, there's a time in which you've learned enough that at some point an elder might invite you in. And in that case, I would say definitely take that opportunity. I would say that if a person invites you in too soon, <laughs> like, hey, come on down to our little spot and you get to engage in all our closed ceremonial things. Yeah, we're not ready yeah. for that. We haven't done enough yeah. work. You know what I'm saying? So that's my Absolutely. auntie moment. I don't say Thank you. I don't say you have no access to it. I would say you have like a, a way you can temper your access until you feel more able to connect. I, I think I think we deserve that opportunity, especially as those of us who are from the diaspora, the African diaspora, because, you know, in which I include all of um, Central and South America as part of as well. Um, we all have, we all, we have it, we have it in us. The, when white yeah. people got on boats, they brought that stuff here. And so we're a part of, we have mm. access. I, I think, I think there's a way in which we have access that, we, that is still thoughtful um but reconnects us and i think that's okay yeah well and that's that's <laughs> a big part of i i'm and that's what i'm searching for i think and a, a big reason that drew me to new mexico specifically and how i kind of like magically wound up in taos of all places okay um which i am i am speaking on traditional taos pueblo lands i'll just uh say that right away there are other groups that have um uh, that have claims here as well. The eldest are, are from the Taos people who live on okay. unceded lands directly that way okay. <laughs> towards the mountain. Um, but uh, before I knew that, um, I moved here to see if I could even begin to access the um, healing practices of uh, Mexican folk healers that have been uh, that has been practiced here for many years. So I originally thought maybe I would study uh, with the University of New Mexico a PhD possibly, and then I wasn't accepted. <laughs> so I've been sort of, you know, I have been trying to sort of begin to make those baby steps, but I'm finding how, how deeply important it is, like you're saying, to be on the land and to be present for the people here first uh, before asking for anything. I mean, I'm lucky that I Absolutely, can yeah. breathe the air. I'm lucky I can drink the water. I can eat the food in the grocery store that's here and mm -hmm. enjoy the sky. Like that's what I'm trying to, um, I'm, I'm really trying to build um, the gratitude to um, feel like I can begin to understand how I would be helpful to mm. a rural town like this that has faced so much colonization over the right. years and is still deeply, deeply, deeply um, uh, enmeshed in the colonial mindset here, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I So I am, and again, it's funny because I just said, you know, I don't believe in anything and I don't like to get woo-woo, but I'm going to get woo-woo a second time. Um, Go for it. <laughs> the importance of the land. I think there is absolutely something for that, especially for us as mixed people to connect to the people that we come from. And especially for us as Westerners, like born in a Western culture, right? Um, I've never had a chance to be, to go to Gabon so far. I haven't had a chance to go to Japan so far, but I have been to England. And in one time when my cousin and mine were driving down the English countryside, um, we're on our way towards um, 
Stonehenge. And there was this place where we were near. We were just driving. Nothing was happening. And all of a sudden, I stood up and I'm like, are we from here? And my, my cousin goes, what? And I said, are we from here? And he's like, England? And I'm like, no, here. Like, this area right here. This, this part town of or wherever England. we're driving to. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And he goes, I don't know. He's like, you know, why? He's like, why? Because I, I, like, sat bolt straight up. And I was like, because yeah. this feels real familiar. And I had no, I had never been there before because this was my first trip to England. Um, and so I was like, it just feels real familiar. And he's like, that's weird. And I'm like, you know, yeah, okay, moving on. So by the time I come back mm-hmm. to the States and I go and look of where, like I looked, I charted where we were at the time, uh, roughly where it happened. And my British ancestry is a split between Scottish, Welsh, and English, but predominantly Welsh and English. And I, okay. uh, where we were at is on its way to Wales because it's attached. And so yeah. my aunt, Welsh ancestors may have had to travel through that part to get to where they eventually ended up in London, but they would have had to probably travel through that part. And I wonder if maybe they planted roots for a little while before they made their way down. Yeah. I don't know that. But for whatever reason, this particular area felt real familiar to me. And, um, and it felt like I would, like, I would be willing to go live there for a little while just to figure out what was, what did I, why did that happen? You know? And I don't believe in any kind of thing. I'm talking about DNA. (laughs) I'm talking about DNA. DNA Because you do sometimes there's some places you go and you're like, man, this just feels like home to me. I'm wondering if that's my body just saying it has a memory, you know, genetic DNA memory that is telling me like, you probably came from here. Um, so it's a place I want to check out again next time I go back because I was just like it, the way I was affected by being on what I now refer to as like home Terra. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to have that experience when I go to Gabon. I want to have that experience when I go to Japan. I want to know that this yeah. is a thing that happens. Right. So I think Absolutely. it is something important apart, especially for your journey, as you're describing, like as a, as a, an adoptee, you can end up anywhere. You know, you literally could end up yes. anywhere. So, in going yes. back to where you think, and you, I have, there might be some I've people lived a around. little bit of everything. Yeah, right. That's nice. And, and it's, and that's why the settling into the land. I feel like, you know, the way you speak about Gabon, uh, I do feel like, how do I describe? There's a little loop in the neighborhood I live in that if I cross behind the house this way and then I walk. Um, back in this direction uh, towards the mountain, there's a little road that's not uh, finished yet. And every time I walk on that road, um, I just am able to, as I look at the mountain, I can feel in my feet and in my joints, myself soften. And I can feel myself able to listen better to the world around me than in most other places that I've been. Um, and again, I don't claim direct ancestry here. It sure. just, I'm just happen to be closer to where mm-hmm. I think some of my people were Might from, have been. Yeah, yeah. you know? Um, so I, and as I, as I do that kind of reach out viscerally, I, I try to do even that with respect to say that like, look, I, you know, I live on um, a patch of land called Llano Quemado, which means burnt land. Um and so just just knowing that, and I'll tell you a brief story about it as well, but just knowing that I live on burnt land uh, uh, means that something happened here that maybe mm. uh, 
I'm going to try not to sugarcoat, but the, but the raising of, of land mm -hmm. probably in the spoils of war. Right. I'm thinking, um, you know, that automatically means a house just got dumped on it. <laughs> and here I am just trying to say that I am not an enemy. I, I really hope that the land that I can be clear, at least with that, that I am trying not to be an enemy and I'm trying to listen but I, I will say that I've heard three different stories about who burned, uh, no, whose land it was mm. that was burned here. We know who burned it, and it was the Apache. Mm. Um, but we don't know if they burned their own land mm. and left. We don't know if it was Pueblo, Taos Pueblo land that that uh, they burned or if it was Spanish colonized land. And right. I say we, I mean, I, I'm sure someone out there knows that. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in the year that I've been here, so I, you know, I've heard three different stories from locals about it. So like, even as I dig in, there's more questions. Right. And I think that's like, that's a big part of this investigation for all of us. Like when we really do try to tap in, because I think us as mixed folks, we tap in different ways. Like some people just like, let yeah. me just know how far my grandparents or my great grandparents go back. And I'm fine. I'm fine to live right there. Sure, um, sure. For me, I feel like there's so many bridges to places I don't have, you know, like they're, they're mm. the, the bridges were burnt or broken or something like that. And I didn't have a mm. connection. And so like in finding out the, the ancestry from what's now Gabon, I, I felt like, Oh, I finally have a bridge back to the continent because up until then my yeah. only bridge was sitting floating around in here, you know, like, you know, I didn't have yeah. anything that told me cause I could go to any African You're country. Like Africa. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like yeah, you know, yeah. Just generally kind of, like, this is kind of home, you know, but I think it's important <laughs> right. to, if we get a chance to find out where we're from, I think that's important because maybe we have some kind of sensory experience that that'll make us feel like, okay, this is home. Um, and that we can pay whatever respects we feel like we need to to that place or that land or those ancestors. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think also the experience of a person enslaved in Gabon versus a person enslaved in Nigeria would be quite different because Gabon didn't enter the, the trade until later. So maybe they did with mm. different things. You know what I'm saying? Like learning yes. that kind of stuff, I think, is is important. Um, getting more into like how you're trying to access your heritage, I guess, more, and, and how that influences your identity. Are you, mm. are you feeling very like just an outside observ observation? Like I'm not, I don't have permission to, to take space or are you concerned about, because there's so much, I mean, maybe it's something totally different, but I also think like maybe the concern of how much whiteness is present that you also feel like, yikes, you know, I don't want to bring my white stuff in. All of the above. Yeah. All of the above. And I've been, I've been, um, clapped back and great and I'm grateful for it. Okay. Uh, when, um, I have been in spaces that I was invited into actually, um, and uh, in revealing some of my um, non-racial, non-racialized uh, trauma, um, one of the facilitators came back and said that that trauma does not give you access to our space. And I, mm. and I, and that was just what I chose to share. That was not my, I, I suppose I, it was not clear to me that I was not allowed to uh share or focus on that i see even though for me my rate i that trauma uh even though there was not an explicit racial tone to it um 
my multiraciality affects everything that I do, you know, but it was just not the right, it was not the right space for that. And I have, again, I've experienced that many times where my, uh, the way that I speak um, and probably the way that I hold myself Mm. and the way that I gesture, like there's a lot of whiteness in there. And I recognize that. Are you perceived Um, as white? Do people assume just white when they see, when they interact with you? It depends on okay. the space, right? I, like, I don't see it, but I, because I'm looking for a mixed person, but I, I'm just wondering, like, do you move, like, I could understand you moving white because you grew yeah, up with whiteness, yeah. but I'm not yeah, looking at yeah. a person that I'm identifying as solely white. So I'm curious how the monoracials yeah. are seeing you or, or treating the you. monoracials. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just, it, it really depends. I, and I've made work about, I've made um, choreographic work about this. So like in a lot of Mexican spaces, I am predominantly gringa. Okay. Um, but, you know, I worked, um, I was kind of telling you a little bit about this. I worked um, with an f- amazing, amazing, super powerful Latina. Um, as she's, I think of her as an auntie, actually myself. Um and she, when she goes to Mexico, she's gringa, even though both of her parents are of Latina descent. She speaks okay. Spanish. Like, so, so the gringa thing is, is really messy. Because um, isn't that, it's, it's kind of a mix between whiteness, but also Americanness, I think, too, right? If yes. You're calling you gringa. So, yes. So you could be, you yes. could look a little browner, but still be gringa because you're from here. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But then in white spaces, I have enough of the um, uh, enough trappings mm. of whiteness that I can that that passing is definitely like from their perspective, I'm passing, but I only see. to a certain point. Right. And you're that still, certain you're point still is off generally. Point. Yes. <laughs> and that certain point has has definitely led to some significant career cha- uh, challenges for me because um, I've only been in predominantly white spaces. Mm. It's all I've ever worked in until this last couple of years. So, like, you know, you can't quite figure out why, you know, uh, you're not invited to lunch with the rest of the coworkers mm. or why they can't quite figure out how to communicate with you. Right. And those sorts of things that I think um, – monoracial people of uh, the global majority, if you're raised with a person who is also part of the global majority, you kind of are ready for those moments. I was not ready for that moment in my adulthood to be able to recognize, okay, how much of this is, uh how much of this is my skills just aren't, aren't up to snuff, which is what they're saying. And how much of it is, oh my God, I think they just called me a bear. Oh my God, I think they just called me a cockroach. Mm. Like mm. <laughs> those things have come up in the last 10 years and I was entirely unprepared for them. So that's, yeah, that's always interesting to me because it comes up on the show on occasion too. And um, and for people that are, you know, white presenting, white assumed, white appearing, because I don't have that, I and I, I have like corporately, I've, mo- I've maneuvered a lot of white spaces, but I've always maneuvered sure. it as a brown you know for whatever that mm-hmm. is for, for other people um so mm-hmm. i like i have a i have a an awareness in them as much as i can have an awareness but for someone who's white assumed like if you did grow up in whiteness yeah i guess it does make sense that you you're not engaging yeah. at this stuff and you're not, plus you're not getting the talks that we're getting if we're brown mm-hmm. if we're more obviously brown because 
I have to have on the black side, I have to have the caution of the police conversations. And Mm -hmm. if I don't have those, I just see it because it's happening in my neighborhood. Right. Mm -hmm. On the Asian side, it's the be the model minority conversations Mm -hmm. like don't stand out and, you know, let them appreciate so I'm yeah. having things like that that are always preparing me for white people will look at you like X, Y, Z. Um, it took yeah. me a while. It took me doing this show to realize that, like, even if you look like you, to me, I'm seeing a person yeah. that has some you're just pale. <laughs> all I'm seeing is that you're pale, but you obviously yeah. are not. Only now. At least full we're, white. It's, it's not summer. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I'm saying like I, I, I would say that I would look at you and I'd be like maybe they're your mix or you're just a very very pale or like obviously far back mixed ancestry but i wouldn't necessarily nail you off of looks as a person that didn't know you were a brown person you know (laughs) you know what i'm saying but no i I, it was a mirror it felt miraculous honestly uh when my therapist started calling me a brown woman i was just Mm. like what like any anybody including me in that category feels um certainly on my side imposter syndrome kicking in but just it just feels like manna from heaven I'm like that part of me is so rarely acknowledged Mm. um and that's why even speaking Spanish in my last workplace was like oh there are times when speaking Spanish benefits us like a lot and I've never gotten to experience that before until like we could just flip in when a you know we were having a private conversation Mm -hmm. and anyone yeah, uh, would walk in and we could just switch and, and keep our conversation going. That's just for us. Like never experienced that before in my life. Yeah, I get year. that a little bit of <laughs> Japanese and it's and but my mom mm-hmm. doesn't speak. I speak. I don't speak a lot, but I speak more than my mom. And so there'd be times when like me and my grandma could have a moment because we're in public. But my mom mm-hmm. would nod along looking pissed off because she didn't mm-hmm. know what we were talking about. And part of it for me was a frustration with her. It was like, why didn't you pay attention? Like it made it so much harder for me to learn because she didn't learn. Um, I didn't know at the time. Also, my grandma had been told from the military not to teach her kids Japanese. I was about to ask. That sounds like that's definitely. Yeah, it was definitely uh, present. But by the time I came around, like you've been an American citizen for 20 years, you should definitely be able to tell me, you know. But she still had all that. My grandma still had all that. And then my mom didn't learn anything. Mm-hmm. And so all the learning I did was independent. And I would mm-hmm. find frustration with, like, because you didn't embrace it, I struggle. You know, like, I had that kind of animosity, I guess, for a while. Yeah. So now, like, 44 years old, I'm still trying. And it's frustrating because I have the the vowel sounds. I have the tonations. I can, I can sound mm-hmm. like I speak Japanese. Mm-hmm. But I don't really mm-hmm. like, you know, I only speak a little bit. And then um, because yeah. I look like I look, everybody always thinks I'm some kind of Latine and they'll speak Spanish to me. And then they'll get mad at me because I don't speak Spanish. And then I have to explain the reason why I don't speak Spanish. And then like at the end of the day, a Dominican will scream in my face to tell me I'm not proud enough of myself and that someone lied to me and that I'm not Japanese. I'm actually Dominican. <laughs> oh, my. No. And I, and I hear I've heard in a couple of your episodes that frustration of um uh, Latina or Mexican, uh, Hispano people, uh, kind of responding that way to people they expect to speak Spanish. And, um, the, the funny and potentially sad part about that is I don't get that. Um, yeah. they don't, they don't come at me with that. Yeah, and I that's am. weird. Right. It's very weird. Cause very, I, very I know what's weird. happening with my face. I know what they're seeing. The reason why it's mostly Dominican, sometimes, uh, Puerto Rican, but mostly Dominican for me is because I have, uh, black phenotypes, mm-hmm. uh, not mm-hmm. skin color, but 
physical features on my face mm -hmm. and my body, my body too. Um, so I know that that's what's happening. And also between Dominicans, they can be very, very yellow like me to, to very, very dark mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I know right, that right. I'm coding, like if you can't figure out what she is or they are, like you're definitely going to get Dominican or, or Puerto Rican or something like that. Uh, Mexican, it only happens when I live in LA and when I have curly hair. Because I grew up in the 90s, I had crunchy, curly hair. And so you nice. know, back then, the Mexican kids would tell me, like, you should be proud of your heritage. And I'm like, I am. But my heritage is Japanese and black now. It's Mexican. different. You know, it was just a yeah. little different. Um, and so now, like, I have I have been nervous about learning Spanish, which I am in the process of learning because I'm about to okay. move to Mexico. Yeah. Where are you going to go? Merida. So that's another thing Merida. I'm working on pronunciation, too. Um, I want to live where the ocean and the forest are near each other. And the Yucatan seems to be the best place to be able to make that possible. I'm also trying to learn yeah. how to do it in a very decolonized way as a non-Mesoamerican, uh, non-Mexican-American, you know, like brown. Mm -hmm. I'm still a brown, but I'm still a Western, you know, Westernized brown. So I'm working on ways mm -hmm. to be comfortable doing that, too. But um, mm. but that's uh, I'm looking for a place where the ocean and the forest meet. That's like where I want to live. <laughs> I want to be in a hammock. I want to be in a hammock like that. So, um, so, so I'm learning Spanish right now. And now I'm confronting the fact that I'm not going to speak Spanish well enough for, because I'm going to be interpreted as hmm. a Latine person, you know, and I'm not going, you know, and then yeah. I'm going to have to say, no, I'm black and Japanese. I know I look like this. I know I live in Mexico. I know my Spanish is terrible. Sorry. You know, oh, like that's well, and I just I've and I've had two different experiences where I get the gringa stuff, I get the, you know, uh the colorism uh and the anti-Americanism that's I don't even fight against that. Um but I have also encountered so many Spanish speakers that are so sweet about it. And sure, yeah. it might it might tend to be the folks that are also bridging the language gap in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So Spanish speakers that are trying, to, you know, uh, trying to develop their English language skills um, in a trade with me, um, you know, so I, I, I will um, put the good vibes out there that you will encounter more of those. Certainly deserve. It. I I still find it funny. So People. I'm still I'm still in the place where even if they yell at me that I don't speak Spanish, I still find it funny because I'm like, like shit. If the Dominicans want me, yeah, I'll go. Fine, I'll take it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's like like yes, yeah, I would absolutely yeah, love yeah. to be accepted fully as a Japanese person. I, I am accepted as as a black person, so I don't really have to. I, I never feel not black enough or whatever um, out externally. Mm. Internally is a different question because I, I lack melanin that I would like to have. Mm. Um, but like when, when, when um, mm. Dominican people are very aggressively mad at me that I don't speak Spanish, I take it as a, as I'm still taking it as it's funny and it's loving because um, it hasn't been like violent. It's just been like, you're not proud of who you are. <laughs> and I'm like, but I am, it's just the wrong thing. Um, um, so that's where I'm still, I'm still there. I'm still there at the, at the place of like, if you're willing to take me up, great. I'm, I appreciate Love that. Energy. Um, but like for someone like you, I imagine it's interesting because the, the gringa thing can work two different ways. It could be oh, like, well, maybe not that, maybe not yes. gringa, maybe the blank, uh, blank, uh, what is it? Blanquita? Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. like white. Yeah. Like I think that yeah, could yeah, be. Yeah. 
like a weird benefit sometimes because of colorism. Like, oh, you've got the nice pale skin and da 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 da. Like if your Spanish got closer to a native speaker and they they wouldn't necessarily detect the gringa part. You know, maybe they would yeah. they would prob there could be situations in which your lighter skin would be idolized, which would send you into a whole nother space of stress about Yo. your <laughs> about your identity. Well, and that's the privilege of it. I mean, and that's the privilege of my combination. And I would never deny um that privilege and, and that it played into my adoption as well. It, I mean, light skinned mixed oh that is fair. Are highly coveted in the commodified adoption market. Yes. Like we are the ones right up, right after white children. Yes. We are the ones that blend easier, mm -hmm. um, which is a benefit not for us but for our for adoptive them. parents. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and also it is it has been a part of what has allowed me to continue to navigate predominantly white spaces mm -hmm. um i have determined that i will not do that again if i can ever help it and i'm entering it, yeah. into like a um an entrepreneurial space that means that i get to control my income um so i don't have to go back um if i can if i can help it i'm gonna yeah. really try to because um despite or in spite of or or juxtaposed to the privilege of my lighter skin as it is right now and it is not always this light um i that that combination of you can only go so far with us mm -hmm. um in the white in the white spaces i've been in um consistently since my early 20s is is a uh, it's devastating to a young person um, to not have the tools to even recognize what's happening to oneself in those spaces um, and to not have the language or the camaraderie or the mentors who recognize who you are, right. um, who can see like, oh, this mixed person. I haven't, I haven't had a mentor since my teenage years who was mm. able to, a black, a black gay man. Uh, may Randy Phillips rest in peace. Like he was the first person to see me in a predominantly white school and say, man, you got something special here. And you, someone is always going to ask you where you came from. Right. Uh, little, little 14 year old Megan. So just be ready for that question. Mm. Uh, no matter where you go. Do you answer that question now as an adult? Um, I I have always been probably uh, for my own safety a little too forward about where I come from. Um, oh, so mostly you, like I you, you beat them to the question. Yeah, yeah, and instead I have pulled back lately to say I'm a nomad. Uh, being a Texan in New Mexico is not is not very fun. Um, oh, really? I mean, if oh the yeah Texas colonizers here. Uh, Red River ah. just down the road is like little Texas, like, ah. and, and, you know, big Texas money moving into New Mexico is a big, is a big thing. So I, I pulled that back and I say, yes, I am from Texas, but please don't, don't hate me for it. Like I left them a long time ago. <laughs> um, the reverse of that Davy Crockett or whatever the thing is. Um, <laughs> uh, the, like I, I'm not from Texas, but I got here as soon as it's the opposite. I'm from Texas, but I left as soon as I possibly could. <laughs> and, and, and several times and and i say that with love for my texas uh siblings um uh my partner is also from texas and we both uh absconded fairly uh often and quickly um for our own safety 
and 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 peace of mind. Um, but uh, you know, when people ask me where I'm from, I've generally lately just deferred back to being a nomad and saying I've lived a little bit of everywhere. Mm. Um, I have a, a, all of those experiences that I carry with me. Okay, so do you get? the where are you from because they're trying to figure out your brown and they keep asking until they get to the brown do you get that yeah that's generally where they're headed most mm. people of of all kinds of backgrounds it generally is to kind of determine that and i it depends on who's asking uh whether i'm going to be open about that or not if if it's uh, if it's like a generational tauseño here um, I am very forthcoming about that because it's part of why I'm here because I want people to know that I have ancestry here sure, yeah. um, and I want help finding the Ruiz family uh, line um, as soon as possible, <laughs> you know, but if it's uh, generally, if it's white folks at this point, I'll just say I'm a nomad because there's not much that has ever benefited me in sharing more than that with, with folks. Um, right. Absolutely. Uh, of, of white descendants. Long I make, I make white people jump to the hoops until they specifically ask me the question so that I can tell them that they're racist about it. Um, for brown people, <laughs> well, <Militelli> mix, yes. <laughs> for 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 brown people, it it does actually depend on the brown, um, because in most cases mm. I will just answer. But if they're Asian, specifically East Asian, because mm -hmm. I am an East Asian, I know what I know what they're asking, which is very similar to what white people are asking, and I will be more gentle than I am with white folks about it in explaining why yeah, sure. they shouldn't ask the question the way that they're asking it. Um, but I think it's good. Mm -hmm. I think the more people, the more we can prevent white people from feeling like they deserve access to the answer to that question. And that, I don't think it takes away yeah. from our pride of who we are. Like there's some people that are very ethnically or racially proud. And I think that's totally fine as long right. as they're not like, you know, the claiming this is supremacy stuff, but, uh, though, yeah, for white folks, I, I need, I need white folks to know that they, they don't get to know. Yes. So I think yeah. I think and that's, and that's probably deferring back to nomad is, is yeah. probably that defense mechanism in me kicking in to say, man, ask, I, man. we're not going to like anything that I'm going to say. So why am I going to tell you? So I'm nomad yeah. and I'm proud yeah. of that. that. That's, that's good. <laughs> Um, so in your, in your quest to kind of get closer to, um, the, the Latine side of uh, your identity and understanding your ancestry there, uh, you did mention like eating the foods, even though it is in the grocery stores there and stuff like that. Are you finding access to cultural foods? Are you learning about recipes or anything like that? Is there anything that has grabbed you that feels like uh, comfort food yet? Yes, and I haven't made it since I moved to New Mexico, and I'm very much missing it. Uh, but it feels uh, so deeply tied to um, maybe it's transformative times in my life that I'm that I, that maybe transformative is the word I'm looking for. Uh, but it's tortilla soup, and mm. I got the recipe from the Enchilada Queen, uh, a cookbook that I got in Durham, New Mexico, uh, Durham, North Carolina. Uh, so no fancy story there. Just like I I'm so desperate <laughs> to learn how to make these recipes and, and to bring them. And also my partner being from uh, San Antonio and Austin area, 
man, he eats uh, Tex-Mex, no problem if it's on the table and otherwise, you know, has trouble with appetite. So a lot of reasons for me there. Mm. Um, but the, the, the recipe itself is a La Fonda um, recipe. So it's sort of a traditional medicinal okay. recipe that, that sort of uh, clears the gut. Um, and it's not always so spicy, but um, it's one of those recipes for the first time that in the process of making it, I finally feel connected. Um, and I, it just brings me so much joy. <laughs> um, and I, I wish I had more qualifiers to explain um, that, but it's maybe that I get access to some, some um, ingredients like epazote or the guajillo chili like yeah. those two specifically make the recipe and just being engaged with those is powerful. Yeah. I, 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 I think we talk a lot about food on this show mostly because I, I want to eat it, but uh, I yeah. think, I think comfort yeah. foods from our different cultures are very meaningful. And I think it is another, one of those other ways that you can kind of connect to your ancestry and in a mm. way that's um, tangible, you know, yes. I mean, Yes. Um, especially for being a person that's not woo woo in any kind of way. Um, I'm not going to be able to experience certain more ritualistic type cultural practices in a way that doesn't just feel like I'm, I'm doing the routine of this thing I learned um, because that's yeah. what it's usually like for me. Uh, but food, mm -hmm. there's a totally different story, you know, totally different story. I'm, I'm connecting back to, you know, all kinds of places when I have different comfort foods. So I, I do ask about it. I also like to find out that people have hybrid foods, but that's a little bit tougher for mixed with white folks um, because yeah. not a lot of Western uh, white folks kept family recipes from whatever home mm -hmm. countries they come from. So like mm -hmm. in, in my case, mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as a mixed black Japanese, I like Japanese fried chicken with like collard greens or mac and cheese. Like, I like to combine oh God, so soul food with <laughs> Japanese food, you know? Yes. But yes, um, yes. but unless you're like still Irish or still Italian or still Russian, like there's not a whole lot of mm -hmm. uh, white or that I've encountered on the show yet where the where the mixed white folks have a hybrid back home from all the culture dishes. There's a break there big time that I've sensed in, in my in my in, in uh the amount of space that I spent uh, in white, the amount of time I spent in white spaces is that disconnect of American, uh, European descendants in Europe is is like it's there's so, like it's someone so brought abrupt. the hammer down. It's gone, yeah. and it's it it's uh, uh, it it feels so painful that they don't even acknowledge it. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting you know. the ones that do still acknowledge whatever home country it is because mm. they haven't been in most cases because they haven't been uh, separated. From it long enough uh -huh, but um uh -huh, but for, uh -huh, right. for for some of the ones that maybe still have a last name that clues you in or or they have family recipes mm -hmm. that clue them in or something like that um mm -hmm. it's a totally different story but it'll be interesting and in like if if the planet still exists from 50 years from now if, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh passive aggressive uh if if the uh if the white yeah. americans refer to themselves as american as a race by then because i'm sure that's the i'm sure that's what people already when mean but it's not a yeah. part of like the accepted terminology yet and i think that's i think that's definitely where they're gonna go so that if yeah. they move from here to europe and people are like oh what's your ancestry they'd be like american but they mean racially not 
ethnically because right. they don't know where they come from. Uh, just to say, with the last name Yankee and growing up in Texas, I wish all of them good luck. I don't know how that got there, and I don't think the family knows. So just, you know, if you're going to try and suss all that out on the monoracial white side, y'all have yeah. fun. I'm just taking the name and, and going on my happy way. That's a real, uh, you know, I should have brought this up. That is a real interesting name because being a Brit, a partial Brit, Yank or Yankee is definitely just referring to Americans. So mm -hmm. I feel like there's probably an Ellis Island, story, Ellis Island story where someone was still from Britain, was working that booth, and just decided yeah. to call someone Yankee as a passive-aggressive thing, and now it became the last name. <laughs> they claimed German ancestry for a while so, as Yankee, connected to Yankee. Oh, so, so maybe like it's a J-A-H-N-K-E, yes. So, like, I'm just like, y'all, good luck on that. Like, I bet not, it's a I'm pronunciation I'm going to focus thing. on okay. the Ruiz. <laughs> yeah, like, someone's just like, I can't spell this thing. We'll just say Yankee. Everybody Exactly. It. That's so exactly. funny. I, that's the other thing, right? Like, sometimes your last names don't actually tie you to to where you actually are from but that's interesting this is um, my adoptive name too so it's not right, my right. Blood name. do you know anything about the the uh, the white ancestry from the the biological Harrison. father okay. Harrison. okay so british probably For, as well sorry, british, yeah, yeah yeah um and a lot of folks that would have ended up in um Kansas, Kentucky, Tennessee type of area would have come down probably from Ohio River Valley and worked their way down and, you know, like just knowing how people to migrated. tell you, you were talking about Appalachia. I had a friend who had land out there and I remember walking to her land and I was maybe halfway up the mile walk that it was and my body just went and I started crying. No, no, that's what I'm talking about. Emotional, exactly. It's weird. No, I, it was, yeah, it was a fine day, and Probably. suddenly I just was completely overwhelmed. So I think you're totally right. It feels woo woo, but it like it does <laughs> it feel woo woo. But like I know? think it's like your body, like you know. I mean, in the same way, like if you if we understand, I I did a lot of anthropology in school and stuff like that. So if you understand like oh, nice. uh, mi migratory patterns of nomadic people mm -hmm. and stuff like that, like it's not much different than the way it happens in animals, right? Like you're passing down mm -hmm. the knowledge of where I got the best mm -hmm. berries, where I got the best fruits, yes. fruits, stuff like that. So if if we're passing that on. In, mm -hmm. in our DNA, then why would it be? Why why would why did that work back then? But it doesn't work now. So I think it does work now. Right. And oh, there's moments said. like there could be the beauty of the place. You could be experiencing awe in the environment just based off the beauty of the place. But there's some times, which, like I said, is a very rare occurrence, where it felt like I was at home, like I lived here. Yeah. And I think that yeah. that's you know that has to do with the ancestral code that's just like we ate food here. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. And I think I, I think in my case, it really strongly felt like someone had died there. Mm. Um, because it was such an overwhelming sorrow that I felt and, and I continued walking after I acknowledged it. And it, it was not it was not. Uh, it was so fleeting. Mm, um, that's why it felt the woo woo like that's yeah. why I was like some somebody somebody passed through me or so, some spirit was like hey remember this no okay bye I'll find somebody else um, exactly yeah that's funny uh yeah I mean I think there I think there's something I I think first of all we need we do need to acknowledge that we are animals too. And so the, the same things that kind of happen to animals kind of could happen to us. And in that case, I yeah. think that, I think that's what's happening in a moment like that. 
um, mm. because there's no way that I will connect a, a more spiritual. I'm just not built that way. So um, same, same. That's that's the way that it works for me is the ancestry part. Uh, how do you feel about this discussion so far? You feel you feel good about being on the so show? So great. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, you're so attentive, um, Charmaine, and I really appreciate that. And, and truly, we um, we need that because I've, I have ex- definitely experienced silencing, um, uh, whether it's tied directly to my multiraciality or not. So mm. uh, for you to be carving out this space for um, not just me, but all the rest of us is, is deeply impactful and profound. So thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. Like you had been listening and then uh, you found some episodes that resonated and stuff like that. I mean, that like, it is the goal of the show. And, you know, sometimes I get lucky enough to hear, uh, that it does affect people, but, yeah, um, yes. you know, you know, not always, I'm, um, but when it happens, it's like, okay, good. The, the work is, the work makes sense. The work we're doing. You're the uh, big podcast star. So we're too scared <laughs> to reach out, but I'll just tell everyone listening, reach out and talk to Charmaine. She's I'm just wonderful. a, I'm just a regular ass main everybody is <laughs> yeah. um, so we've talked we've talked about uh, you know a lot of the stuff some of it's can be tough and some of it's easy but what do you as you've gone on this journey to kind of discover this aspect of you what do you love most about being mixed um i really like being able to fly under the radar honestly um okay. i think that my the ambu- ambiguity that other people assign to me gives me a freedom to navigate the world in a different way mm. um than i perceive a lot of my monoracial colleagues and peers do um and it's taken me a long time to distinguish that and i i don't know if i necessarily have all the um, i don't have all the verbiage uh, lined out to be super clear about it but um, there's a little bit of code switching, switching, code switching, code switching that I, I, I uh, like it. I'm going to take it. <laughs> take it. Take it. It's yours. There's some code switching that I like uh, that I actually take advantage of uh, sometimes for my own protection, sometimes for fun, sometimes uh, just because I can. Um, and I know there's, you know, some folks really uh, don't want, don't want code switching to be a part of their lives. And that's fine. Um, but for me, uh, my multiraciality, I'm, I'm flipping on its head and I'm turning it more into a, uh, basis for survival for myself and a basis for thriving. Um, what does it give me access to, um, in this world that, uh, I had made that had maybe not been unlocked for myself before, because I did see myself as monoracial for a long time. Um, what kind of freedoms does it afford me? Uh, is yeah, it just remains the ongoing question. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show and having this conversation with me. I, I appreciate you reaching out as well. Um, to hear in advance a little bit of the impact was was nice to as a starting point of where we can get into. Uh, do you want people to be able to find you? Do you want to connect with people? How do you? You want to tell people? Sure. I'm my main place is LinkedIn, which is kind of gross and weird for some <laughs> folks. Like, who does that? I was encouraged for a job, so that's where all my my professional stuff is banked right now. Sure. Um, uh, so it's uh, the the short handle at the end is M. Uh, sorry, Megan D R Y, M E G A N D R Y. 
um, on LinkedIn. And um, I, I hope that if folks can, they'll reach out. I'm also trolling around on Reddit a little bit um, in the multiracial and adoptee spaces. So mm. um, uh, if anyone uh, wants to troll around with me in a loving way there, I'm, I'm more than happy to engage there as well. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. And for everybody out there, don't forget to be your mixed SOs. Thank you, Charmaine. <laughs> Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one you can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantly mixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantly mixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.